everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Nukeproof and Crank Brothers. This year, the Chain Reaction Cycles Enduro World Series team are going to be running the Nukeproof Horizon V2 wheels, and I'm going to be giving you a chance to win your own set in just a minute. As an engineer myself, I can appreciate the thought that's gone into these wheels to make them strong and durable, easy to work on and to ride well too. They're using the ABEC high performance bearings with full contact labyrinth seals to keep the worst of the winter out. The rims are made of magnesium silicon enriched alloy blend to create the right balance of stiffness and ductility. And they're sleeved instead of welded for consistent strength. If you ever manage to break a spoke, then they're the readily available JBIM ones so it's easy to find spares. Nukeproof sent me a pair to try and my impression from the first couple of rides is great. They've got 102 points of engagement which is fast and the free hub makes a nice noise without being stupidly loud. The design is simple and subtle so they'll look great on any bike and the best thing is that they come already taped and with tubeless valves fitted. I don't know about you but taping rims has got to be one of my least favourite jobs. They're 30mm internal width which seems to be a bit of a sweet spot these days and they're downhill approved too so you don't need to worry about durability. You can buy them separately, you've got a choice of axles, boost, non-boost, free hub, all that kind of stuff, and you can get a mixed wheel size pair too. They're all available from your local Nukeproof dealer. To be in with a chance of winning your own pair of Horizon V2 wheels worth £400, all you need to do is to head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash Nukeproof. That'll take you to a Nukeproof landing page where you can enter by joining their newsletter. No spam, just an email once a week keeping you up to date with what Nukeproof and their race team is up to. You've got until the 1st of April to enter. With the help of riders like Lucas Shaw and Fabio Widmer, Crank Brothers have designed and developed a whole range of riding shoes that are available now. They've got a flat pedal shoe, a DH clip shoe and a more enduro focused clip shoe too. And they're all available with either a regular lace, a speed lace or a boa closure. I think it's fair to say they've sweated the detail and put a hell of a lot of thought into this first range of shoes and you can see and feel the results as soon as you slip on a pair and go riding. First off they're the most comfortable riding shoes I've worn straight from the box which in itself is impressive. I've been using the boa closures which are awesome as you can fully release all the lace tension in a split second making them super easy to put on and take off even when they're covered in mud. I've ridden with a flat pedal shoe in some pretty rough terrain now and I've not been left wanting for grip on the pedal. Somehow they've managed to find that balance between having enough grip but not so much that you can't make those micro adjustments on the pedals. I guess that's what happens when you employ a rubber expert from Michelin. It's also reassuring to see that the pedal pins aren't tearing chunks out of the sole after the first few rides so that hopefully means that these shoes are going to last a good while. The clip shoes have been a revelation for me. I'm using them with Crank Brothers own Mallet DH pedals and they've made clipping in and out so much easier. Even with the standard release cleats, not the easy release version, I already feel way more confident riding clips than I did before as I'm not worried about being able to get out the pedals. I really can't work out how they make it so much easier, but I'm certainly not complaining. They're not just designed to work with Crank Brothers pedals though, they've done loads of testing with a wide range of the pedals on the market. So whatever pedals you're running, Crank Brothers shoes are well worth a look. If you're in the market for some new shoes, then check them out at crankbrothers.com or at your local Crank Brothers stockist. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. All right, I'd like to ask you to do two things for me today. Please make sure that you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so please head there and hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode when it drops. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where I've got links to all the major platforms to help you. The second thing is please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's a great place to keep up to date and it's always awesome to hear from you in the comments there. All right, this week it's time for a catch up with Tracy Mosley. Tracy was one of my first guests nearly four years ago now, and a lot has changed since then. We chat about Tracy's current role supporting the athletes on the Trek Factory racing programs. We get her thoughts about the importance of team fit and culture and what she's doing about that within Trek. We talk about her pregnancy, being a parent and getting your child into riding. And we also talk about Tracy's return to racing at the EWS E-Series and how she's approached getting fit for that with the limited free time that being a parent delivers. So without further ado, here's... Tracy Mosley. Tracy Mosley, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? All good, thanks. Yeah, great to be back. Good stuff. Yeah, it's been a little while. So we had a little catch up at uh, Kendall Mountain Festival back in 2018 for the show, but the last time we did a full episode 
was four years ago, believe it or not. Wow, um, that is time is lot, flying, hey? <laughs> yeah, a lot has changed in that time. And I'm guessing like the biggest change for you is that you've become a, a parent. And I yep. think it was Toby three this week. Three on Sunday. So yeah, just literally a few days ago. So yeah, three years oh, has wow. flown by. It's quite crazy to think that he's he's no longer a little baby anymore. He's a proper little human. So yeah, it's mad. It's amazing. Yeah. How have you found parenting so far? Um, cool. I mean, that, that's the, the biggest thing I would say. I was never really like one of these people that was like, oh, I can't wait to be a mum or it wasn't like a big life goal. You know, it was never like a, a, a girl that was all googly over babies. I used to steer well clear of any young kids, <laughs> like well clear. So uh, I was quite glad that nature did take over and allowed me to bond with my own child because I've had no, <laughs> no experience with it at all. Um, and hands down, it's the best thing ever. It's the best job, the best journey every day's like it's the hardest thing to every day is a challenge in some way shape or form but you see so much change and you get well I feel like we get so much back from him he's just awesome and a huge part of life that I would be lost without now lovely and covid's just uh come along and thrown a few extra challenges in the mix hasn't it yeah definitely I mean in, in, I think in some ways I have to think about the fact that we've had well not that Toby's been to nursery very much but he would have done a bit more <laughs> if COVID wasn't here. So we've had just more family time, which actually, you know, when you look back on it in a few years' time, you'll probably be actually quite grateful for some of that extra time that we spent as a family just close to home doing stuff. You know, it's tough. It's definitely been tough at times, and I wish I could ride my bike more. But um, in general, though, it's been an amazing chance to just, yeah, spend every day with a little guy and see him change because it is it's every day you see something different. It's incredible. Yeah. And do you think there's things you've learned from being a parent? Like, has it changed you? Um, I think it's just made me prioritize things differently, I guess. I think up until this point, and certainly, you know, being an athlete, it was it's quite a selfish life that you lead. Everything's about you and performance and it's, you know, everyone else kind of fits in around that. And it's almost like the complete reverse now. It's like now Toby's a priority and he's the one that everything revolves around so it's just it's made me kind of have a complete shift in in that mentality and I think that's probably a good thing I think it's really you know it'd be tough if you spent your whole life just engaged around what you want to achieve and what you want to get out of life so it's been nice to have a you know a forced change in direction and hopefully made, made me a better person for it nice yeah and as a, as a parent with a little toddler myself I'm really interested in how you've approached getting Toby into riding like what what stages have you gone through and how have you got him comfortable on various different vehicles yeah I think the, the really important thing was that I didn't want to feel like we were forcing him to ride a bike because that's the last thing in the world I don't want to be that pushy parent you know make take him to the pump track and take him to the BMX track and get him get, get him pedaling as soon as possible and, and I guess I was quite keen to see if he could start pedaling soon and then actually it was I saw more and more of him enjoying his balance bike and the stuff he started doing, the little like just jumping off stuff and just like doing wheelies, little endos and just playing. And I was just like, wow, this is all just come from, from him. It's not been like, this is how you do a wheelie, Toby. You know, there's been no, no, no teaching or coaching. It's just from, come from play. And what we've really tried to do is make sure that his his bike is just a mode of transport when we go, we've made it, I think, an effort, again, more because of COVID, to kind of go for local walks rather than travel to the Forested Inn or, or local bike place and go riding. We've just been doing walks from home and he comes on his bike and it's just meant that we can go a bit further. Um, and it's, you know, as soon as it's flat or downhill, he jumps on his bike. And if it's, if it's uphill, initially we used to just carry him and his bike. But now he's actually, he climbs a lot on the balance bike because they can stand astride it and, and walk up hills. Whereas I think if he was pedaling, you you they'd struggle you see little kids when they first start pedaling as soon as it goes uphill slightly they're often yeah. hating life so and i kind of watched the jackson goldstone video and saw him on the uh, balance bike going to school around five doing <laughs> doing blooming 360s and stuff i thought it's good enough for jackson it's good enough for toby so we're quite keen just encouraging that balance bike for now even though he's three and he can pedal he actually prefers just to to scoot around on his bike and it's it's just awesome to see it's purely just a fun play tool and we're just going with it and seeing seeing how much he enjoys it and, and not forcing it at all. Yeah. Do you, and have you put him on your bikes as well? Like, do you take him riding on your bike as well? Yeah. So right from when he was probably 18 months-ish, I would say, we had him on a Mac ride, so he was in front of us. And that was that first day of like, is he actually going to hold on? Because <laughs> literally, <laughs> they are just holding onto the handlebars and their feet are in little little straps. But I think having him in front of you, I actually the first day put him... Um, 
I put like a little bit of a climbing harness almost around him. So it was around me as well. Cause I was just worried cause he was so little. Um, but he loves it. He absolutely loves his Mac ride. And that's now my nursery. We go to, to nursery three mornings a week now on, on Mac ride and just ride to school. It's only takes five, 10 minutes, but everyone thinks I'm this, this weird mum that goes to school on a bike. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of sad that in this country, that is the case. You don't see many people taking little kids to school on bikes and it's such a shame. Whereas no, you don't. anywhere else in Europe, it would just be the norm. So um, yeah, hopefully he's not going to get kind of teased at school for having a crazy mum that rides to school on a bike, but he loves it. He's just like, it's cool bonding time and it's, we're outside and whatever the weather we're wrapped up and riding to nursery. So yeah, it's been wicked. Yeah. That's awesome. It's cool that he's enjoying it as well. And like, obviously no pressure for him to do it, but he just naturally, like, I mean, people just like riding bikes, don't they? Yeah. I don't think there's many kids that don't. So No, it's funny. You see kids that, you know, never had that chance to do it. And I kind of feel sad that they've not been, you know, given the opportunity because even when we had snow over Christmas, we took him up to the hills and we took his bike because he wanted to take his bike everywhere, but expecting him to then get in a sledge and sledge. And he said, no, no, I want to ride my bike. It's more fun. Let me on my bike. So he was like going down this snowy slope on his bike when everyone else is sledging. And it was just like, that wasn't us. That was purely his choice. So uh, yeah, it's just cool to see him enjoying it. Amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the pregnancy side of things because it's something I've not heard much about with kind of pregnancy and mountain biking. Did you manage to combine the two during your pregnancy? Like how how late into pregnancy did you ride and how did you approach it? Um. Well, I kind of had a really, I think the the good thing was, I guess I wasn't trying to still like compete or train to get back into competition really quickly. So I had retired from racing and my racing and riding was very much just secondary to, to, to my kind of normal work now. So there wasn't that pressure to feel like if I didn't ride, I was going to lose my fitness. So I just very much listened to my body and just rode up until a point where probably for the first, well, the first three months, I was still working as a technical coach for British Cycling. So I was still at all the World Cups with the cross-country team, um, trying to keep up with them and finding it increasingly <laughs> tougher, but not telling anyone that I was pregnant. So that was an interesting few. <laughs> that was just summer. Um, I even raced Downeyville Classic, actually, only a couple of months pregnant. But at that point, it was that was tough because <laughs> it was at altitude and it was a big old day out. Um <laughs> And then still not telling anyone. So, but then by the September, so that would have been July, yeah, three, four months, um, was probably the last time I did any like serious downhill stuff. We did a a holiday to the Pyrenees, James and I, and I definitely was just like riding for fun and taking it easy, but still feeling okay. And I think it was more that six, seven, eight months time when you started to get that just a bit bigger. I just got uncomfortable, like. Yeah. Like I had a big beer belly and I was having, you know, see those, see those guys riding back from the pub and their legs are like, you know, out, like they're riding a horse. And it was like that. And I was like, this can't be good for my knees or anything. And it was just, it wasn't fun. So I thought, well, why am I bothering just to keep riding my bike? Yeah. It's not fun. So I definitely didn't ride for a few months, but then actually probably the last four to six weeks, I kind of, you end up getting so uncomfortable. Actually riding was probably the nicest thing. It was quite weird. And thankfully then I had an e-bike. And that just did make the whole thing a lot more pleasant because you had that ability to not be huffing and puffing and still getting out there. So actually right up until a few weeks before I had Toby, I was doing only a little bit, but just getting out, getting to fresh air and just moving felt actually quite nice. But honestly, on the e-bike, it was just, I wouldn't have wanted to do anything else. Um, yeah, I never point. thought about the e-bike as a tool for that. That's a cool, cool use for them. Yeah, it was brilliant. So yeah, that was a nice kind of escape in the last few few weeks. But yeah, I wasn't really... The nice thing was I had no like forced need to keep doing it. I just totally did it if I felt like it. And I wasn't trying to train or keep up anything else. It was just go with my body and did lots of yoga, did lots of just other stuff and lots of walking and enjoyed the time kind of without that pressure, I guess, of having to train for something. Yeah. And what about post-pregnancy? Did you try to get back to riding quite quickly? Like you say, obviously not not a pressure there from the racing side, but it's something you clearly love and kind of live and breathe yeah how did you get back to it I think it was four weeks after I had Toby I, I actually did my first ride up onto the Malvern Hills and it was just like that was probably was still quite early days um I ended up having a c-section emergency c-section so there's obviously a little bit of kind of stomach trauma that goes on with that um yeah. but it, it just felt amazing it was just this, this massive sense of freedom I think that's what was driving me to ride my bike um, <laughs> but it felt horrendously hard as well to begin with just having had that break off the bike and I think just the lack of sleep that you get for those first few months is brutal on the body and the first few rides I did I was just like I just had weird like 
my legs just felt like they were like tree trunks. It was just like some weird, like, like not pain, but like pins and needles and loads of stuff that just took a while to like actually feel like my legs again. Um, yeah. So it was just, yeah, for me, it was just literally an, an hour was all I was getting. And I started calling it mom's hour because literally in between, in between feeds, it was just like escape and do an hour on the hills, come back. Um, and it was nice. Again, no structure. I just, when I could and I felt like it, I went for a ride. If I didn't, I didn't bother. So it was very much just a, a really cruisy introduction back to riding. But then I also kind of challenged myself to do the Malvern Hills classic kind of returned that June. And I thought, oh, yeah. I'll just go and do the slalom. Because it was like, that's the <laughs> first thing I ever did when I was 15, probably, was the dual slalom at the Malverns. And looking back now, I think, what was I thinking? I was literally three months after having Toby. <laughs> and there I was like rocked up on my bike, like barely having well re- probably rode it about two or three times before i even got there um in between trying to feed him and i was just like i think at that time you're so delirious though you just do stuff and at the time it seems like a great <laughs> idea and i look back now i think what was i thinking but that oh, was cool it was good to get out there i think you you need that escapism whether it is just to get away from you know the those crazy change of life that's happened in those few, first few months so yeah, it was good to escape Remember seeing you at Hard Rock, I think, and you yeah, uh, that's right. did you win? But you stop you stopped halfway around to feed Toby yeah. as well. Had two had two food stops. <laughs> uh, luckily, we were staying on the on the on route of the course, so it didn't have to deviate at all. It was quite handy. Um, but yeah, that that was really fun to do. That it felt amazing. I, I probably enjoyed that race more than anything I've ever done before because it was almost like being able to get back out there and race, but also have family and have Toby there it was really quite a special feeling. I remember like going out a bit too hard and dying for the last hour to get back because <laughs> that was the longest ride I'd done in a, quite a while. Um, but yeah, it felt so good and just very different doing it as a, as a mum and with a very different motivation. It wasn't just to, to go that wasn't like a job to go out there and win. It was something I really wanted to do for the, the fun aspect of it more than anything. Yeah. Nice. And it's been, uh, it's been exciting recently to hear that Rachel Atherton is expecting. And uh, from what I can see on the social media side of things, she seems to be quite keen to, kind of come back to high level racing having been through the experience yourself how hard do you think it would be to get back to winning world cups after something like that yeah I was really interested to see that I know Rach has been wanting to have kids for ages and it's cool that she's you know she's they've they've obviously been able to and she's made that decision which which must have been tough you know to be able to decide right I'm gonna take a break um and yeah interesting I I will be very impressed if she gets back to winning World Cup downhills. Really will. And I don't put it past her because if anyone will, she probably will have that determination and support around to do that. Um, I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, well, I can carry on doing my job. I can carry on doing this. You know, it'll be fine. Toby's just going to join in. And to to a point I have, but there's also the reality of actually your life changes hugely. And there's someone that's relying upon you, you know, all the time. And it's the choices you make, I guess. We've chosen to to have Toby and we've wanted to look after him and be part of, you know, him be part of our life. So we're, we haven't sent him off to, you know, nursery five days a week. You haven't got a nanny. We're definitely caring for him ourselves. So I think if you, if you want to do that and that's your choice, I think it's really hard to then get back to the level of commitment to training. If you need to be training for like three, four hours a day, you know, if you want to get back to winning and competing against other athletes that are doing that without, without any of the other stuff that you've got to do as a parent so it yeah I'd love to see her do it because it would be impressive but she would definitely I think have to sacrifice a little bit of time bringing up her child to be able to put in the effort to get back to that level of fitness and and strength to compete at that level so we'll see very interested to see yeah definitely yeah time poor is definitely a way I would sum up parenting like it's unbelievable how little free time you end up with yeah and yeah, the time that I used to invest in my training and riding and resting, you know, like that, you, that everyone else you're competing with will be, you're not going to get that. You're going to cram in a few bike rides and then you're back to doing your job as a parent. So yeah, interesting to see, but I hope she does because it'll certainly prove a point that it is possible. Yeah, it'd be good to watch for sure. So like you said, even before Toby, you started to kind of shift focus away from racing, you effectively retired, I guess, and you're now working in a different role, um, but still with Trek. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, what your job title is and what that what that means you do for them? Yeah, so when I, when I found out I was pregnant, I then kind of started to already work towards doing some logistics for the enduro team. So I was booking all their flights and accommodation and basically kind of helping run the, the enduro program, which was 
kind of a good transition being able to work from home and obviously having the experience of race with that team for quite a while myself um and then it's kind of evolved I guess the in 2019 the Trek then took on the downhill team as their own kind of in-house program having it been kind of um out with the Athertons with Martin Whiteley for a good few years so it's finally Trek had kind of ownership and, and managerial responsibilities for downhill cross-country and enduro so that's the point when they kind of took on a management group and my role now has become I guess more of an athlete liaison so I'm working with all the athletes I'm in contact with them regularly making sure that they've got everything they need they've got any issues then I'm that kind of link between them and Trek um I still do a lot of the logistics for the enduro team but well, most of the, the travel bookings and accommodations for them and some of the cross-country team as well um now so I'm kind of yeah involved in mainly the cross-country cyclocross and enduro but also have a little bit of um input into Daniel team too but it's more of a kind of a working group there's about eight of us that kind of run the three teams so it's quite a cool group and it's definitely we share a lot of knowledge and experience across the three programs and yeah it's been full-on and, and covid's made it extra challenging i have to say in, in terms <laughs> of booking anything and planning wow it's i feel like i've spent yeah the last 12 months basically just hours planning stuff to then unplan it rebook it cancel it change it and yeah it's it's not been fun i'll give it that but hey we've got to keep trying yeah Yeah. with well with covid and brexit what's it like trying to get a uk based athlete out of the uk at the moment because you've been doing that a little bit with uh with evie yeah i've had some uh many sleepless nights i wake up thinking how we can do this but yeah it's more just jumping through hoops keeping check of things that change daily you know in terms of rules and regulations and and getting into the world of diplomatic bargaining with governments really you know the only way we've got EV to racing recently is having to have a letter from whatever the country is we're going to from their government minister of sport to say that this athlete is coming to do a race that is you know of importance and can't be done elsewhere and then letters from British Cycling from the UCI letters from Trek so I've done a lot of a load of that stuff and then even though you file these, you know, your paperwork with the, like for Spain recently with the Spanish government, it was there for two and a bit weeks. We went to the airport on the one, the Monday before the race weekend in the hopes that we've got letters from everyone but the government thinking maybe we'll be able to get through. No, turned back at the airport. So then went home thinking, well, this is never going to happen. And on the Wednesday, we got the letter come through having been sat waiting for two and a half weeks. So then it was like, a rally to like right everyone needs covid tests today to be able to travel on friday then back to the airport on friday and finally evie did fly on friday and then went and won the the race on saturday so it was <laughs> it was worth all the stress but in the end i decided to stay at home because i was only going for a few days anyway and you do a few days and have to quarantine for 10 days when you return it just yeah it just doesn't make sense so i've definitely been yeah done less traveling than than i would have liked but yeah it's impossible to be able to kind of do it all so happy just to be able to to get them overseas and get them training and being able to race because race is happening it's a shame that you know if we can't race and be competitive and it's people missing out on points and opportunities to score towards olympic selection and stuff so it's yeah it's been hard the last few few months for sure yeah but how have you found it then dealing with athletes on a on a kind of regular basis and not necessarily racing yourself um i think it's it's really useful having had that background for me because i can I can I know what goes on inside your head as an athlete I think a lot and that's a lot of my role is just often a listening ear someone to bounce ideas off to give my input and and thoughts but also just help kind of steer their thought pattern and I think a lot of the time with the COVID as well it's just helping trying to motivate you know keep that keep that fire going keep that encouragement help keep training on track and just keeping regular contact you know during lockdown I made sure we had zoom calls with the whole team every two or three weeks so as you know we were still in contact and it wasn't like everyone was isolated around the world and it was very much an update on the world's coronavirus politics most <laughs> weeks but um at least it was you know you were staying in touch with your teammates which i think was really important because i think it would have been if i was an athlete now it would have been really tough to have had so much uncertainty and not know what you're training for it's it's hard to keep that motivation so that's been what i've been there for trying to make sure that everyone stays motivated and, and keep planning for stuff that will hopefully happen and not just kind of sit back and give up for a few months because then you'll be off the off the back if stuff does start to happen so yeah it's yeah, been, yeah. been I, interesting I, I wanted yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about athlete team fit because it's something that 
I'd never really thought about until I started the podcast and went to a few World Cups because all the teams sort of seem relatively similar on the outside, like it's a big fancy truck or a van and a big fancy tent in front of it. But broadly speaking, it all looks pretty similar. But I think it's fair to say that once you step inside each of the pits, every team is is quite different, really. And it feels like you could get an athlete with amazing skill, fitness, talent, all of that, and they could potentially sort of underperform if the team fit isn't right. How? What do you think about that? Like, Do you think that is a real thing, or am I just over-egging it? No, massively. I think... I think so much of success in in sport in general, and certainly in you know in athletes, is down to the mental side. And are you happy? That's that's to the end of the day. It's like you can be the fittest, fastest, have the best equipment, but if you're not enjoying your job, you're not going to perform to your to your best. So, creating an atmosphere around an athlete that allows them to get the best out of themselves is is the key. But like many things in life, you know, you you don't choose family. <laughs> Sometimes you don't get to choose your teammates. So again, a lot of my job is trying to create that atmosphere that, that creates success. Um, and it's obviously done in different ways. Teams have different budgets. You know, money does pay for certain things that can help. If you can have, you know, some fancy five-star chef that comes in and cooks your dinner every day and, you know, and you all sit together and eat and you haven't got to worry about budget in, in some ways, then that def- definitely creates different, the ways teams are run and different structures. Um, but also just different nationalities. You know, that's the thing everyone's culture is different so you can have riders from all over the world on the same team and it's again they they're not going to necessarily have the same humor get the same jokes have the same outlook on 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 sport or life and you only you have to realize that when you're away racing world cup for a year you spend you know day in day out 24 7 with these people that are your teammates and if you don't get on with them that really does start to cause issues you know just on a on a day-to-day level, let alone the racing psychological side of it. So it's super important that you can create the best atmosphere with the people that you've got and selecting staff and riders is a, is a huge key, but it's not always, you know, able to go out there and just buy the people and work with people that you want. So, um, yeah, I've done probably done more of that kind of like people management side of things with my role than I ever, ever imagined before. But I think it's probably the most important thing to make sure that, you know, people appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses and you know what annoys someone if you're doing something that really annoys them you need to know that they need to know why and you need to build that communication and that's probably the biggest thing I think behind successful teams is good communication and and good teamwork and and creating an atmosphere that works for those individuals um and being able to change that when your riders change and their needs change so yeah yeah it's and it- it's a science I would say <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Are there specific things then that you've done within the Trek framework to try and kind of drive the culture or improve the fit? Like, are there any examples? Just the biggest thing for me, I think, is is eating together. And that's like, you know, for actually to sit down and have dinner together as a group um, and to spend, to chat with each other. You know, that's one of the hardest things that if you don't do that, and sometimes, especially with I think with downhill, it's always been much more of a social kind of sport in many ways because you generally hang out in the pits and you sit there for hours all day, each day, go up and do a three-minute run, come back and sit in the pits and you know have a natter. And it's just a much more social environment, with, whereas cross-country is very much individual riders. They come in, they do their training session on the course, they do a few laps, chat with the mechanic, go home, put their feet up, recover. It's very much more of an individual sport. But at the same time, if everyone just did that and you went sat and ate in your own room, at the weekend you wouldn't ever get that team feeling and that team vibe and really build those relations so that's one of the things that I've really encouraged with the cross-country team is to make sure that we are eating together more we're trying to spend time also with the staff and the riders it's not just a mechanics are kind of doing their own thing and riders doing their own thing it's very much more of a team thing and again that's more of a thing for cross-country I think downhill's always had a bit more of that community feel anyway just because of the way the sport works um but yeah that's been key for me it's just chatting with people spending time eating is always a really good chance to do that yeah it's a family kind of activity isn't it? i guess it breeds yeah. that family feeling to things yeah and just relax time where you're not not talking about necessarily talking about the race you can just talk about normal stuff and, and normal life which is also important 
Yeah, for sure. And you, you know, you've got a pretty big change coming up on the on the downhill side of things this year with Loris Vergier joining the team. I mean, it's a massive change from him coming from the syndicate, like completely. I think it's maybe like one sponsor that he's carried over, and everything else is totally different. Uh, have have you got much insight there into kind of how Loris is settling in and how how do you feel about having him on the squad? Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's a it's a huge change for him um, to yeah to leave all those things that you you know and have been super successful with to go from the how successful he was at the start the end of last year. Um, but I know that you know I think thankfully in a way we've we've got a late season start now, um, and Loris has managed to get how to bring his mechanic with him. So that's obviously he's they've got that connection and they've got that you know knowledge from the past. So. I know they've been spending a ton of time testing already. Um, and from from what I gather, he is super happy. He's loving the fact that, you know, even though we've not managed to get together as a full team, we've really pulled out a lot of stops to try and get product to him, you know, get his mechanic to him, provide as much of stuff as we can. In the moment, getting bike parts is almost impossible. So just like yeah. getting stuff set up for him at the start of the year has certainly been hard and everyone's worked massively hard to, to try and support him the best we can um and i think he's really enjoying the structure maybe you know there's quite a different sans cruz and syndicate is very much like a probably a more relaxed fun feeling team vibe maybe you would get that looking at it whereas trek's a bit more of a big corporation but at the same time i think the group of guys we've got on that team now is just they're really really serious about what they're doing but at the same time they're, they're going to have fun with it and i think he's enjoyed having that amount of structure and planning and maybe you know just a, a bit more organization in terms of early season testing and getting information from trek and us wanting to get information from him there's a lot of two-way that goes on there with a rider of his caliber so yeah super exciting he's definitely he's got pressure to 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 perform for sure because people are going to expect him to continue where he left off and he's obviously got a complete brand new start but i don't doubt that he'll be up there because he's just got that work ethic and and skill set to go with it so really cool to see yeah, it'd be exciting to see how he gets on. And I mean, it's a hell of a lineup, right? You've got Loris alongside the current world champion, Reese Wilson, podium contender every day of the week, Charlie Harrison. Cade, I mean, you can clearly see him moving up towards the top of the pack too. He's got the skills. Is it hard to kind of have a group of so much talent together? Like, do you act? Do you actively do anything to, to manage that? Or that is that group just kind of fit together and work? Yeah, well, do you know what? We'll see because we haven't yet got all of those guys together under one tent yet because the season has not started and we've not been able to get everyone together for a team camp, even though we've tried on numerous occasions because of COVID. <laughs> um, but I think I think in general that individually they're all super professional guys that want to do their best. And I think that's that's the important thing. They'll all also want to push each other and get the best out of each other. So I, I you know, sincerely I hope that that is a, they're, they're all good guys and I don't see why they wouldn't, you know, just push each other on and create a really cool team environment. I think just having enough staff, enough mechanics and having enough support, which we would, we do have, that's important. So they're not kind of feeling like they're getting their noses pushed out if someone else has got a mechanic and they haven't. So they've all got their own mechanics and they're, um, in theory, they've all got their space to kind of shine in their own, in their own right, really. So, uh, yeah, I certainly look forward to seeing how that, how that works out this year. And uh, we just need a bigger pit space because it's, we're just growing. <laughs> that's cool. Are you, yeah, you already had a pretty big pit, so we're we gonna uh, fill it now. I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Are you involved with the the Rock Shocks Trek Race team as well? Then with Valley and Jamie. So a little bit, not in terms of the actual running of the team. It very much will be be run separately. Um, but definitely, I've got some involvement with you know with Valley joining the team, and obviously for me that huge kind of own personal input in wanting to see a female, you know, be successful on track again. Um, so yeah, in development role, like definitely, we're definitely looking kind of long term with working with Valley and and hope that she'll continue to grow into the incredible athlete that she is and be with Trek for quite some time. So um, that's one of my kind of roles this year. We'll be trying to get to a few more downhill races to be able to on, on course with Valley and just have a bit more of a female input for her, so she's not just this poor soul um, girl amongst all of those guys. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've been lots of chats with her and really looking forward to to getting to know her more this year and working with her because she's certainly got some, you know, an incredible future ahead of her, hopefully. Definitely. Yeah. And again, it's a big move, isn't it? From, uh, from YT onto Trek, like, but bringing some more familiar kit with her than Loris is, I guess. Yeah. Are you, 
are you going to be up on the hill with her? Like, how's that support going to work? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, myself and um, Andrew Shandra are kind of both of the kind of athlete liaison roles. So he's working more with the downhill team. But one of the requests from Valley was that I would she try to you know use me as much as possible again, just to have that female insight and input. So I certainly will be at some of the downhill races. Um, quite a few of the ones that are doubles, hopefully. So most of them, I'm hoping. Um, and yeah, definitely on course watching and just yeah being there to kind of have ideas bounced off me you know ask questions and just in general my idea as well is to try and get her over to the UK at some point again travel travel allowing um and just get her more more incorporated with the team the other guys and even cross-discipline working with the enduro guys so getting her riding with Hattie and that's you know a big a big thing that I like to to encourage is a little bit of that cross-discipline um just teamwork and getting her riding with other females, having some fun, just building up that network of people that she knows within Trek. So I'm hoping we can get some of that going as soon as we're allowed to kind of move around a little bit more. Yeah. And I I mean, quite a lot of pressure on her shoulders, I guess, really. There's a lot of expectation maybe is a better word than pressure, but she's certainly shown she's incredibly capable and at world she looked like she could go for the win if she hadn't had that injury. So yeah, it must be, it must be quite hard to, to change teams and come into elite and take that that amount of pressure i suppose yeah and i think that's probably why i think that rockstox team is going to be perfect because she's brought her mechanic with her she's kind of not on the factory team with trek she's still got a lot of her own sponsors so in a way she's just kind of continuing her partnership with matt her mechanic and just broadening it slightly um but still with tons of support there if she needs it but not really with any pressure from us it's more of a development kind of program for us to see what she can do and, and not lump that pressure on but yeah, I think also now with Rachel out of the out of the picture this year, it does seem like it, you know, it opens up that that podium place is even more really. So yeah, I'm hoping she seems the little that I know her so far, she seems like she's got a really mature head on her shoulders. And I think, you know, if I can help in some ways continue to keep that, then I think that's that's the key. And as long as she's having fun and enjoying it, um, and she's pushing herself riding with the lads, which she seems to, then I think she's um yeah, she'll have a great year. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned the uh the EWS team. How's Flo? Because he had a bit of a nasty crash in in a, a little camp somewhere. Yeah, yeah well, it's such a shame because we've been like trying to put this training camp together for primarily to get you know, Andy, his mechanic, over from the UK to Flo, and we managed to get through the travel logistics to get Andy over and Hattie, and they literally had four or five days together before Flo was on a is lit is home home trails as well, which is often the way the trails you know the best. Um, and I know they'd made really good process with uh, progress with some testing and he was up to speed if not as fast as he's ever been down his home trails and was looking things were looking great and just always that one that one slip and uh, yeah dislocated shoulder so certainly a big bummer for us because I think he was you know Hattie had spoken to him this you know on this trip and said that he got a new coach this year he was definitely in a very different kind of mindset and looking super confident for this year so Again, fortunately, season's going to be starting later. It does give time to to hopefully be recovered and and back to full strength before the season does start for the EWS. So, just fingers crossed that's the case. Yeah. Do you, do we know if he needs to have an operation or anything? Not yet. Those he's, lines, he's still got scans this week, and I spoke to him yesterday, and he was still kind of waiting for the final verdict as to what the specialist was going to say. So, we'll find out more in the next few days. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Cool. Let's let's talk a little bit about your own racing then, because you've you've been back between the tape in various different guises over the last couple of years, racing all sorts of different events. But last year you got stuck into the uh, is it EWSE. What's it called? What's the official yeah, name? Yeah, I think that is it. E- EWSE is probably the easiest way of saying it. <laughs> e-bike enduro. I don't know whatever we want to call it, but yeah. What, what took you in that direction? Um. I guess two things. One was a desire from Trek to have some representation uh, on the e-bikes for the enduro. And I think without taking away any of, any of their full-time enduro athletes to try and do that, um, it kind of was a, a question they said to me, hey, do you fancy doing it for us? Um, and I guess the thing that kind of drew, drew me to it was I kind of, I've still got that niggling desire to want to get back racing for sure. I'll never lose that. <laughs> Um, the reality of being able to get back to the the speed or fitness I had, you know, when I was racing is just you know, impossible as we spoke earlier about time constraints. So I felt like it was almost like a chance for me to get back to that, into that scene and to, into that group and into where all my friends and my past has been um, and have fun with it, but without having to, 
it'd be able to put in the hours of racing. I'm, again, I think going forward, I'm not going to be able to get away with the minimal amount I'm doing now as, as it gets more competitive and more people do it. But it was super fun for me, again, to do something new as well. I've always quite enjoyed that I was there with the first ever year for the EWS in 2013 and to kind of be involved in almost like the the pilot project almost or something has always been quite yeah. fun and you kind of end up always having like the most memorable moments from those for early years where you're kind of discovering how it works and they pushing the boundaries often too far and you learn from the mistakes and you learn from the crazy things that God, I can't believe we just pedaled for like five <laughs> days you know like whereas now you look back on it you think what were we doing so there's a little bit of my madness that thought it'd be quite cool to be involved in the development of another discipline and again just be able to also give a little bit of my experience and feedback to that so I've certainly been involved you know in the advisory group with helping shape what that e-bike racing looks like on the in the enduro format so I've enjoyed that and it's it got me it gave me a goal to get training again really to to be competitive so yeah. tick lots of boxes in many ways yeah what is the format can you just explain how it kind of how it works so it is the same as a traditional enduro obviously you've got multiple mainly downhill stages throughout the day that you have to get to um with a pedaling loop obviously this is all pedaling there are no shuttles involved with e-bike racing which i think is fair to say um but the way they've done it with the e-bikes is to not um have like a a limit on the battery size obviously some e-bikes have got smaller or bigger batteries than others so it wouldn't really be fair if you kind of were limiting the battery size so they basically made three short loops so they're only about an hour long so it means that anyone even with a 500 watt battery or a 700 watt battery you could still pretty much go on turbo the entire way around and not run out of battery so it's kind of trying to make it fair in that sense um so you do three different loops with two or three stages on each loop come back change batteries go back out do another loop um and the only difference and quite interesting fact, I guess, is that they've also added one or two uphill stages, um, which you wouldn't obviously have in a traditional enduro. So that's made it really quite interesting. They're only super short, but they're really technical. Um, and it's, it is an opportunity to lose a lot of time if you really make a mistake <laughs> out of it. Um, and trying to climb an e-bike up really steep technical stuff can be a super challenge in itself, let alone with the pressures of trying to do it as fast as possible um and the and the physicality of trying to do it fast as well you actually do have to have a bit of fitness and a bit of strength for it so that's been quite cool it's quite different and new um and people have definitely enjoyed seeing that so yeah it's it's evolving again to see what they do this year how they kind of how they change that whether they add more of the uphill stages or longer loops or or yeah how technical it becomes but it was yeah really fun format yeah it's like a 90s national having uphill racing again it's uh brings back some old memories yeah I really what, what was it like as an event to race they were they were fun i mean in some ways i would love to have had this like huge big massive backcountry adventure um but there's no way you could do that without having multiple battery stops and that just logistically becomes impossible so um i felt like it was a shame we couldn't have you know gone further certainly in pietro Ligura near finale like there's so much terrain there up in the hills it would have been cool just to have like gone and gone for days so it was kind of it felt like we did the small loops in some ways was a shame not to have been able to go further but mm -hmm. in order to make it fair and to make it kind of yeah on level playing field for everyone i can understand why they've done it um and the good thing that they really changed from the first round in zermatt to the second round in pietro last year was they made the um, the liaisons to get to the stage is way more technical. So actually the climbs to get there were hard in the sense. And they also, they put in quite a um, tight time restrictions on getting to those stages. So actually okay. it's almost as like, it's hard to get to the race stage on time if you don't push on as well. So you've got uh -huh. to be one fit and two technically able to climb well. So it was quite a f intense hour, hour and a half loop. You come back, change, have half an hour, have some food and you're literally even the speed that you ride an e-bike at that 25k an hour if you're on that limit all the time like the processing of everything on the trail it's it, it's pretty full-on like you come back not fatigued <laughs> not fatigued from like pedaling like you would a normal bike but just yeah the processing of everything that's going on so fast um it's yeah it's tiring and but good fun too yeah and is there much difference in how you set up your e-bike compared to how you'd set up your normal race bike because you you're traveling across similar terrain but i mean certainly throwing an uphill stage in changes things and then the weight of the bike and everything that goes along with that as well 
Yeah, I think the the biggest concern probably for me was the kind of the puncturing aspect, more because you've got that extra weight of the bike and the way I certainly find riding it with with the weight and on the downhills, I tend to be I'm not able to be so light on my bike and be able to maneuver it as much. I tend to be a bit more of like a, a passenger feeling like you're on this race ship and you're just kind of steering it as you go down the trail. <laughs> so I think that was the biggest thing was, you know, being conscious of punctures. Um and the hardest thing I found was just my own physical strength to be able to just break when it got steep, you know, the weight of the bike and the braking, having to put the biggest, you know, discs on I could and just having that upper body and hand strength was the one thing I really felt like I could tell I hadn't been training properly for um, and not having had time, any time in, in the mountains like I would have done in, in previous summers. It was like straight into alpine trails. I was just, my hands were dead, so dead. So <laughs> that's one thing I've put more effort on this this winter and will do certainly for this coming race season is to make sure that my upper body's stronger than it was last year to be able to cope trying to hang on to an e-bike for for a few days at a time because it was hard yeah <laughs> and those i mean those longer travel e-bikes which I, I guess is what you're picking for those kind of events they're very much sort of designed as a shuttle rig almost to to handle well downhill do you w- do you think they're designed, they're not really designed, I guess, for technical climbing, are they? Do they, would there be changes that you'd want to make to a regular long travel enduro bike to make it better for the EWSE? If that, does that make sense? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, certainly ours, the Trek one is definitely like a, it is very much based off a traditional slash enduro bike. So the geometry and stuff is very similar. So it does, it does handle well up and downhill. The only thing that I, I did find that when it was really, really steep, I was struggling to get enough weight over the front to stop the front wheel lifting and certainly with also the, the power that you get from the motor it it, it wants yeah. to it wants to wheelie more for you as well so i actually used a technique of um having an old toe strap tie strap down and pulled my fork down so almost like the old days those talus forks where you could you know lower the travel and some people yeah. hated that but for me i really for the climbing it felt like a huge difference i didn't have to like force my weight forward the whole time it changed that geometry so i would strap my fork down at the start of those climbing stages just to help on the climbs um so that's yeah one little trick that certainly for me helped a lot um but otherwise no i mean i think you you need good grip you need the handling to be to be right um so no huge changes that 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 you would use for for regular riding not for me anyway yeah and how did you approach getting race ready again because i mean as a parent with a young child and sort of covid threw everyone off a little bit i think how did you, how did you get prepared to be out there doing it? Like I think you had kind of alluded to the fact that maybe you weren't as prepared as you'd have liked to be. I was about to say I don't think I really did prepare very well. I just kind of winged it. I went with experience and ten years of racing behind behind me, uh, <laughs> if I'm honest. But um, the one thing I did do, I spent I did three months basically of of trying to train again, and I got Phil Dixon, my old coach, just to say I said, "Hey, I need some help," and more because I just needed. To, someone to be accountable to to if i just didn't do anything then i he'd give me a you know give me a bit of a nudge and say hey you need to crack on so i did spend most of that time just trying to get fit again that was just doing hour and a half like first thing in the morning seven o'clock when toby literally wakes jump out the house leave him with james while he can kind of slowly wake up and and get out and do an hour and a half road bike or cross-country bike and that was it with with a little bit of gym mixed in but not really enough and a run once a week so i was like it was pretty minimal if i'm honest um and then literally before i went to zermatt the first race having done very little like no setup on my e-bike at all i just kind of jumped on it and and rode and felt really really rusty to the point where i was like super annoyed with myself that i'd just gone and done that (laughs) so then between the two races i did spend a lot more time on my e-bike i did a bit more a little bit of setup stuff and just got a bit more comfy and straight away i felt so much better when i got to to the pietra race that i was like a bit more prepared so um so yeah i definitely just kind of was a little bit kind of risky with my approach last year um and thankfully it was only two races so it wasn't really too much to have got too fatigued about either so yeah i'm my plan is to do i have already done a bit more upper body stuff already this year and yeah i need to get back on a bit more e-bike specific stuff as well in the next few months and um i'm hoping the fitness will be the thing that comes back the quickest so it's more the strength and the the skills I need to kind of just brush up on. So 
hoping, yeah. hoping I'll have a bit more time to be more prepared. Now Toby's in nursery's thankfully restarted. I've got three mornings a week now where I can get <laughs> I can get two hours in that I can hopefully dedicate if work's not too busy to dedicate to trying to do a bit more. So we'll see how the cramming technique works again. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Do you think being fit for e-bike racing is very different from being fit for either downhill or enduro? Like there's obviously some similarities, but do you think there's some e-bikes or specific elements in there? yes the strength and also just the riding of the e-bike you know the the learning to control the power uh that mm-hmm. sounds crazy but just like you know and the weight of the e-bike so the way it handles as well so i think it's it's easy to get it's not easy but it, you can get fit on a regular bike but i think to actually be good on your e-bike you need to spend quite a bit of time on the e-bike i don't think it translates straight away i think they do ride quite differently um and certainly for the climbing stage it's just really getting the feel for it and getting to know how to pedal efficiently how not to like there's a technique to like i find to have to get your weight quite low and if i try and climb something really steep my saddle up high i feel like i can't get my weight well enough and you tend to lose traction on the rear wheel because there's so much power going Mm -hmm. through it so just loads of little things and the the more time you spend it's like anything you know you need to do the the bike that you're going to race on is you need to spend time on that thing you can't just jump on it and expect to go fast so yeah definitely more time on my e-bike is the key for this year yeah have you played around with the calibration of the motor at all because you can change kind of how the power kicks in when you press on the pedals and stuff like that can't you i think not so much with the bosch one you basically have certain settings you know four different okay. you can't really adjust it i know some of the brands that you can kind of play around with it and change the you know each of those settings to suit uh-huh. what you would like but the bosch one's very much more just you've got well, you basically, I just ride in turbo. Like, why wouldn't you go in turbo if you've got turbo? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, it is like full turbo everywhere, pretty much, and hope the battery lasts. Um, but yeah, just sometimes it, the turbo is too much. So I think, yeah, it's learning to judge whether you knock it down. For us, one one notch like EMTB is our like next level down. Um, but yeah, I think it's just it's just learning to manage this, manage that the power and delivery of it and a little bit of pedaling technique. So you're not like... You can't be choppy on pedals again because of the grip. You've got to deliver that power, even your own power, in a efficient way. So as and the motor kicks in in the same way. It's like yeah, it's definitely a it's definitely a little bit of skill to it. Um, and if you've never ridden one, it's it's hard to be super efficient and clean on them. So yeah, yeah, definitely some, some learning. Yeah, definitely some practice. Cool. Yeah, I wanted to chat a little bit about sort of the some of the current challenges that it feels like the sport's facing and I think COVID's had a a pretty big impact on some of that as well. It seems like the outdoors is busier than it's ever been, uh, which is awesome. Um, but I've definitely seen and heard about some issues cropping up between trail users. And as a result, some trails have been shut to bikes. Just wondering kind of what your experience has been. Have you seen much of that locally like how are things in your area on very, that front? Very timely. You should ask such a question. Um, oh, really? Yeah. But well, in in general, I think obviously we've seen massive amounts of people out in the woods that would never normally be. So litter has been the one thing that's just been unbelievable. Yeah. Like, yeah, just disgraceful. Like, I don't understand why people would just go somewhere nice because they're going somewhere nice and then leave all their rubbish. It's just it honestly drives me insane. I can't get my head around why people do it. But that's been probably one of the most frustrating things. Um, and then the the increase in illegal trail building, whatever we want to call it. I mean, it, everyone, yeah. everyone loves to scratch a trail and, and dig a trail. And I think <laughs> lockdown has given so many people, and it's not just kids, and there's plenty of guys in there, you know, probably mid midlife crisis ages that are out there digging, <laughs> digging trails. And I, I get it. Yeah. You know, people like that escape. They want to dig. They want to dig something they want to ride. Um, but people also don't appreciate that a lot of it's on, you know, it's, it's public land or private land, even worse. And they haven't got permission to be there. And they're also, you know, some of our local stuff, they're bringing in, you know, timber to make timber drops and stuff. And they're making construction, not just, you know, digging, digging trails and clearing the leaves. They, you know, going, building jumps. And it then starts to then, the knock-on effect of that is, you know, when the landowner finds out what's going to happen, if someone gets hurt, what's going to happen. It's just, I feel like there's been quite a lot of selfish kind of stuff going on. It's just like people are just building stuff for them and not really mm-hmm. getting together as a community and working out what's the best way we can do this. Um, and I think 
some of the professional athletes also have responsibility to you see a lot of those guys building rut tracks and you know as soon as they've blown out a rut they go and build another one somewhere else and it's like that's what the kids copy so I think there's a lot to be learned from how we portray ourselves as, as in theory the professionals out there and what we're riding um and sadly just this week on the Malvern Hills so my local kind of riding area which is definitely not a it's not a bike park in any sense it is a beautiful you know outdoor space that is multi-use and in theory we can only ride on bridleways up there so there's only a limited amount of trails that we can ride um but for the 40 well 30 odd years that i've been riding up there we've always ridden all over the place and more recently again because the amount of people there's more people than building illegal trails on there and we they had two cases of barbed wire being strung across trails this week that people came oh, wow. across in the dark and it's like i i get that there's illegal trails being built and it isn't, it isn't right. And people are riding irresponsibly in terms of speed and looking out for others, but there is no ever and no place to start putting, you know, a barbed wire fence across something that someone may never see. So mm-hmm. that's quite, um, quite sad to see, but also I think a sign of kind of where we're at at the moment, maybe with, with the fact that everywhere is getting crowded overuse. And it'd be really interesting to see if in a few months time, when people can start to travel again, when the bike parks open and, people have their outlet again maybe it'll go back to a manageable level but i don't know whether or not this is actually going to be the new new norm and i don't know how to what's the best thing to do about it because i think in general mountain biking is very much a kind of individual kind of activity there's small groups there's so many groups but there's not really like people don't join clubs there's no real structure to it and it's it's just this underground little world of digging um (laughs) And yeah, I, I worry that it's going to implode at some point and we're going to have a huge ban and a shutdown on, on places that are actually really fun to ride and somehow we need to manage. Do you, do you think there's a responsibility on riders? Like how, what could we be doing additionally or differently? I mean, obviously being conscious of where we are and what we're digging and how we're building if we are building, but should we be talking to people that we do think are doing irresponsible building, like how does the responsibility sit? I think as anyone that's in the public eye, then you need to be, you need to be responsible for what you're doing. I think you need to know potentially what, whose land it is and whether or not that's allowed or not. And I think why not ask the question if you, if we find out whose land it is, try and communicate and can we find a, a common, a common ground or meet in the middle on some of this? So is it's, it's done in a an amicable manner and i also think there's lots of there is a need to to ask if someone throws litter if someone's digging something say hey you know is that the right thing to do and have that discussion i know certainly my james my, my husband does loads of that around here and picks up all litter in our local kind of under a ra- off the radar riding spot and and it's often met with quite a bit of backlash because oh what do you know you're causing stopping us having fun and it's it's so sad that there's just that mentality that people just it is a selfishness. They just don't get it. They're just thinking about what's fun for themselves. And I think we're all so kind of time pressured as well. We've only got a little bit of time. We want to go and ride and we don't necessarily want to input into helping create those, those groups. And, you know, look at what ride Sheffield have done. And I think, God, that should be the, that should be the, the kind of trademark for everywhere. And Josh yeah. Iceland's just gone and, and bought some land. And I need to catch up with him and find out how they've done that. And that's probably, you know, things like that need to be, need to be the way we go forward. I think in, in helping, manage and educate and and for kids not to think it's okay just to go and dig ruts in some farmer's field and just get away with it it's we've got to think long term we've got to think about sustainability and and setting an example that our sport isn't just a bunch of you know people lawless people wanting to ruin the environment and we actually we do care about the outside and nature and you know it's there's more to it than than what you just see i think from the outset from a lot of people that just have this hatred towards mountain biking because they just see what's going on rather than getting to know the people behind it. So there's a huge responsibility. And I just, right now I'm not quite sure how we start because it's, you know, there's no one governing it. There's no body to kind of join and educate, but we definitely do need to try to go in that direction somehow, I think. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. I worry about it and I, I'm quite happy to go and pick up bits of litter here and there and do that. But beyond that, I, struggle to know kind of how to tackle it mm. it's uh it's a big one and like you say it's so disparate and there's no you can't just go and speak to a governing body and 
kind of make change in a simple way it's it's so hard to fix effectively yeah but i do feel like we're at, we are a little bit of a kind of a, a crux that i think things will change and if stuff like this has happened locally and we start getting people doing barbed wire across trails and, and having those conflicts you know things will come to a head and, and change is going to have to happen um so yeah i'm hoping a little bit of relaxation of lockdown is going to allow people to to move around more and take some of the stresses off local places i think and and see what comes from there yeah yeah it'd be interesting to see whether that makes a big difference or not like you mm. say it's hard to know if we've hit a new normal or whether this is still yeah. just purely driven by the covid stuff yeah Definitely. interesting stuff well we're getting close to the end of our time but um we've got four questions that we uh generally finish up with we've asked you the first one four years ago i think so we're going to ask it again anyway to see if you've got a different answer and then we'll hit the other three because you've not had those I'll so the first of anyways, those <laughs> <laughs> the first of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds to improve their performance on a bike what would you recommend they go and spend it on improve their performance was that yeah or to have more fun or to ride better however you want to look at it um i would say get some flat pedals that's not going to spend they're going to be expensive 150 quid but certainly i think going back to basics so flat pedals and going back to where you first learned to ride so pump track local jumps and just fully going back to basics you know popping wheelies trying to do a little manual and spending time doing that and if you've got a bit of cash left over get someone to give you some pointers and tips as to how to do that and just really i think take take your riding back a level because that's what then it helps you improve your riding rather than just trying to always go faster it's like what can i and can't i do and, and find out what those little chinks in your armor are in terms of the skill set and, and work from there good stuff i like it second question if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16 what advice would you give her oh i wish i had well do i i don't know um <laughs> I kind of wish I had had more um, ability to have like trained more or taken it maybe a bit more seriously in those early days to have like, yeah, not been quite so lazy when it came to like getting fit for Daniel because I probably could have done better way sooner if I'd have uh-huh. realized that. But then at the same time, would I have had so much fun with it? Mm, it's hard one that actually because the way I did it was just like, just did it because it was fun and training was not fun so then i would have lost a bit of that so yeah yeah, i don't know yeah there's definitely a gap in the men's and the women's field there i think for anyone that was willing to put in the hard graft away from riding downhill right i look back at some of the videos and i basically never got out of my saddle i just sat there and didn't even pedal (laughs) i'm like wow why didn't you just get up and turn the pedals a few strokes and that would have helped a bit but, um, it's a bit different isn't it these days the sport's oh, come a long way in 20 years oh it's incredible i mean you look at the training and the professionalism of it now it's in some ways it would have been quite cool to have been to have been part of that but at the same time i don't think we would have probably had quite so much fun to just goof around like we did <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it makes it even more impressive riders like greg minard that have been able to take it all the way from the yeah. very early days to and still win oh, races yeah. today and have them have the desire and motivation to do that is is even equally and more impressive because yeah yeah it's crazy incredible yeah fair play question three if you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present who would it be and what would you want to learn and you can have an on bike and off bike one if you want oh well um probably i'd love to have gone back in the day to have done some riding with Anne Caroline Chausson when uh, she was just so far ahead of the rest of us girls in terms of being able to jump so just to have had that confidence and ability just to have jumped like she did when I was like first at Dana racing was just amazing to see um so even now getting to race her you know on the Enduro was always cool and just yeah always kind of had looked up to her from the start of my career um and an off bike maybe oh, i don't know pass yeah run a blank on that one that's all right 
It's a tricky one. I can't. I'm think sure I'll think. It, I think I think of it once they're finished. To be like, oh yeah. Well, you can let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Add it in. All right. Final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Sleep. <laughs> no, I'm a yeah a huge. Yeah, I definitely need a lot of sleep, and that helps a lot. Um, but no, I I do think. Do I do every day? Almost every day. I try and do a little bit of stretching and foam rollering. And even now I can just, it's almost like my me time as well, just to sit down and just like mm-hmm. roll on the floor, watch a bit of telly before I go to bed. And But it makes such a difference, you know, just the, from beginning to end when you first do that first kind of stretch or roll or even a roll down like in Pilates, just like, oh, my body. And by the end you're like, oh, I feel so much better. So yeah, <laughs> trying to find time for that bit of, self body looking after is the key to hopefully growing old without having too many aches and pains definitely and do you do you do anything on the sort of sleep hygiene side of things are you someone that kind of does a lot to make your sleep as good as it can be or are you naturally just a good sleeper um i'm naturally a good sleeper i've definitely had a well the first year of having toby it was just like (laughs) wow I thought I'd sleep through everything and then I would wake up to hear every single movement um thankfully I've got back to being quite a good sleeper and I can now sleep through most of his noise until it starts to make a big noise um (laughs) but I think the key to me is making sure I go to bed you know before 10 30 if I was to start going to bed later I would just crumble so I think I've always been told that the hours before 12 are worth twice those after so I'm definitely a, an early to bed and an early riser kind of person. And I think that just, that works. I like getting up when it's, it's, you know, sun rising and it's, I love those starts of the day. Um, so yeah, that's all I do really. I just try and go to bed early and sleep. Very nice. Well, it's been super interesting catching up and uh, finding out about everything that's changed in the last few years and getting up to speed with what you're up to. If people want to follow and keep up to date, where's the best place for them to look? Um, I'm trying to do a bit of Instagram and, uh, and Facebook. So yeah, Tracy underscore Mosley on Instagram and Facebook. I'm really not as good as I should be. And thankfully that's not part of my job these <laughs> days, but I do try and, uh, do my bit with that. So I'll still be, uh, keeping you up to date with what I'm up to there. Good stuff. All right. We'll put those links in the show notes so people can find them, but yeah, wish you all the best. Uh, hopefully we get some racing underway in the not too distant future and look forward to seeing you at a few events and seeing you racing ews e at some point during the year as well brilliant thanks very much look forward to it awesome cheers tracy take care bye all right that's it for this episode with tracy i really hope you've enjoyed listening a massive thanks to crank brothers for supporting this episode i highly recommend you check out their new range of riding shoes especially the versions with the boa closure i'm loving riding both the mallet e clip shoes and the stamp flat pedal shoes crank brothers have really headed out of the park with their first ever range of shoes and you can check them out at your local crank brothers stockist or over at crankbrothers.com also a massive thanks to nuke proof if you're in the market for a tough well-designed set of alloy wheels then definitely give the nuke proof horizon v2s a look if you fancy the chance to win your own set, then you can enter the competition by joining the Nukeproof mailing list before the 1st of April over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash Nukeproof. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, then you can get yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the show. You know what to do by now. Please keep on spreading the word about the show. Tell your riding mates, share the episodes on your social media. It does honestly make a massive difference. Also, if you've got the time, then a review on iTunes is super helpful too. All right, there's going to be another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride.